This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. The Trial of Sam Bankman-Fried. You're going to hear testimony from a lot of people. You're going to hear people saying that Sam knowingly committed crimes because they've already pled guilty to these crimes. Mm. And he told the jury box, he told the jurors directly, do not necessarily read too much into their stories because they've signed a deal with the government to testify and play their role here in this trial. Welcome back to the trial of Sam Bankman-Fried. I'm your host, Kelly O'Grady from over at Fox Business. So we've entered week two of what may be the financial crimes trial of the century. And as always, we are here to break down every twist and turn for you. So just to get you up to speed, right, the prosecution, they're presenting their case. And thus far, we've heard from a victim, an investor, and a couple of people from Sam Bankman-Fried's inner circle. And it was it was kind of interesting. The government really started on a human note. They presented the jury with someone who had lost $100,000. Remember, though, the burden of proof here lies with the prosecution. And as much as this has played out in the court of public opinion, the jury needs to be convinced beyond a reasonable doubt that there was a failure to disclose necessary information and criminal intent on SBS part. And so where the prosecution is going to really try and do that is in the testimony of a handful of cooperating witnesses, those who have been indicted for fraud but are testifying in exchange for leniency. So we heard from the first last week, Gary Wang. He's the co-founder of FTX and sister firm Alameda Research. And his testimony has really been explosive thus far. Not only has he refuted SBS claims that he was uninvolved in Alameda's dealings, but he flat out admitted in the first few minutes of his testimony that he committed fraud and named SBF as a co-conspirator. Next up is going to be Caroline Ellison. She's the CEO of Alameda, SBF's ex-girlfriend. Uh, she's going to be the prosecution star witness and, interestingly enough, the defense's main source of blame. So who better to break it all down than someone who actually knows some of these players personally? I'm excited to welcome Zach Guzman. Uh, he's a former Yahoo Finance anchor. I would say he is a crypto aficionado, definitely the, the person that I go to to learn about all things crypto. He's the founder and CEO of Trustless Media, and if possible, someone who may be more fascinated by this case than I am. So welcome, Zach. Yeah, thanks for having me back, Kelly. It's good to be chatting with you. Yeah, definitely. So you know, I, I want to start off kind of with how you know Sam Bankman-Fried, because we've talked to a lot of folks, um, but you've actually known him personally as as a journalist, um, you know, in the crypto world. So how did that relationship develop? Yeah, Sam came on my show a few times when I was still at Yahoo as someone who covers crypto. There was no bigger name than Sam Bankman-Fried yeah, in 2022. And uh, also after I quit to kind of launch a Web3 community-owned show uh, and build out Trustless Media as a Web3 media company, uh, there was no bigger name to turn to to have on your <laughs> cap table. So I turned to uh, Sam and Alameda as we were raising money and a few other investors as well. And so, yeah, I've been pretty focused on this case to really get to the bottom of what happened. And I've also been, you know, digging into the facts along with you and every other journalist. I mean, that courtroom's packed with a who's who 
of anyone who has ever covered anything in crypto really trying to get to the bottom of this. Yeah, well, and, and it's it's fascinating because it's not just about crypto. It's, you know, it's it's finance, it's fraud. There's a juicy diary that we're about to get a taste of, which we'll get to in a bit. Um, you know, but what was your your first impression of Sam? Because I think the the prosecution has been playing this up. The media has been playing this up. The the sweatpants vibe, uh, the big hair, the the MIT math nerd. But then, of course, it all comes crashing down and people are wondering, oh, is he a crypto crook? Is he just someone who uh, got over his skis? What was your your first impression when you talked to him? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been pretty interesting, honestly, to to reflect on, you know, my thoughts on Sam as a person that, as you said, I've known kind of as first a guest on my show, just a founder in this arena. And then as, you know, a guy I came to know pretty uh, personally, just in terms of going to the FTX Bahamas conference, uh, interviewing him a number of times, then raising from him, then chatting with him just as a founder, a fellow founder in the, in the Web3 space and as an investor, I mean, you know, he's been covered in the media a lot. He's played the media game pretty well in terms of being on any show he's ever wanted to be on. We've already seen Michael Lewis and his coverage on 60 Minutes. Like, there are a lot of people saying that he is an evil genius. <laughs> I don't think either one of those things is fair. He's certainly not evil, I don't think. I think as more details come out in this case, I do think it's more of someone who miscalculated a lot of the risk here and was not really, uh, you know, upfront with his team or investors about what was going on, or customers for that matter. But at the same time, obviously he's not a genius, because if he were, I think FTX would still be operating as a company if he was able to manage all of these risks and set things up properly. I think there are real challenges that any crypto founder faces too, though, without the rules being written. So I don't think anything's ever as black and, and as white as you know the media wants to make it seem. I don't think anyone's ever 100% evil. So I think it's it's been a tricky thing to navigate both as a journalist, as a founder, as someone who also just kind of wants to know what really happened. And so I think you've set this up pretty well. I think, you know, both sides of the story here are now playing out for these jurors. And I mean, the odds were slim at the beginning of this trial for SBF to really get off, I think. And each day it looks slimmer and slimmer. <laughs> well, you know, the point that you bring up about the founder piece of it. It reminds me of a different fraud trial, the Elizabeth Holmes trial, you know, fraud on investors. Uh, it's one that I I covered as well. And there's that fine line, I'm sure you know, as a founder too, where you need to convince people that you can make something work. And there's that that line that you flirt with between getting someone hyped up and amped and willing to invest as well as staying true to what you believe in, what the facts are. I mean, that's that feels like a moving target if I put myself in a founder's shoes. And I'm curious if that's a place where they go for that charge. You know, of course, there's fraud on investors, there's fraud on customers, there's a number of different, seven in total. Um, but that'll definitely be something uh, I'm curious to see play out. But you mentioned the trial. So let's kind of dive into some of what we have heard there. Um, you know, we, we've heard from from Gary Wang. And one of the things that I found really interesting that he brought out was this very special relationship between Alameda Research, which he was a co-founder of with Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX. Also, they were both co-founders. And he identified a number of ways that Alameda, allegedly, was treated differently. And one really popped out to me because it was just an eye-popping figure 
where Alameda was allowed a $65 billion line of credit, where in context, Wang said that at most there were a few other firms that were allowed a million or a little bit more. So very big discrepancy. From someone who has covered the finance industry, who is in the crypto industry, is that a unique relationship? (laughs) You know, set it up for for our listeners. Is that something that raises red flags for you? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's one of the things that I feel like is, is guiding some of this, you know, search for regulatory... Some people call it a regulatory crackdown. Some people call it just rules and frameworks for the crypto industry. I mean, there is clearly a need for some of these to be set up. And you're right. A lot of this would never be able to exist in the traditional financial world because there are rules in how markets function. And in crypto, there aren't really. And so it would be very odd to find someone that would, you know, have such control on both sides, both on the exchange on the FTX side and also one of the major market makers that is essentially making that exchange function, which was the case with Sam Bankman-Fried both playing the Alameda side, his, his hedge fund Alameda Research, and FTX, and almost all of these key decisions falling on Sam's plate himself. And also, you know, again, in this trial particularly, as you talk about what Gary knew at the time, what we're going to hear uh, from Caroline Ellis and what she knew at the time, as well as the other executives at FTX, versus what was being directed by Sam himself, and the jury's going to basically have to, you know, read the tea leaves and, and look at all of these stories as they're presented to them and try and see who's telling the truth. And that's tricky. But but I do think that, you know, for as much as this industry, right, as someone who has covered traditional markets for a long time and now is in the crypto markets, it's very interesting to kind of see how many people hate the idea of regulation how many hate the idea of the SEC stepping in and really making sure that some of these protections are in place, but then also hate when a company like FTX comes along and doesn't really have any rules to follow and is free to do whatever they'd like. There is a lot of hypocrisy in the crypto space in general, and that's one that, you know, as these things come to fruition, I hope a lot of people realize there is some good regulation that is needed in the space to prevent things like this from happening again uh, and could have prevented them from happening in the first place, maybe depending on how much, you know, regulators are able to see and in this case you know ftx and alameda both being privately held uh a lot of these things weren't caught ftx didn't have a board sam was basically doing whatever he wanted by himself so i I think that's another element that people also overlook is that there there wasn't really that much oversight for sam himself to be to be running both of these companies and having all of these key decisions come down to him and I'm glad that you brought up the board point because just for for our listeners context, a lot of people have been wondering, well, why wasn't there oversight? And you you sort of played out for us the industry piece of it, that just the crypto space is is not regulated right now. And it's certainly something that members of Congress have been laser focused on since this collapse. But there has also been this question of, well, why wasn't there a board? And when you're not a public company, you don't have to have a board, right? I mean, it's it's really about the terms when you bring on investors. Are they guaranteed a board seat uh, in when you're raising money from them? And and hearing from Sam, there was a point, uh, there was a, an investor that testified where he had raised concerns of, hey, you know, we, we do need some oversight. And Sam agreed, okay, sure, at some point we'll do that, but I don't really see the value in it. I mean, those are decisions that he was legally allowed to make, right? 
Yeah, those are decisions he was allowed to make. And I feel like, again, I don't think uh, someone would have been able to get away with a lot of these decisions if it were a different market. But you got to remember how crazy things were in crypto as, you know, all prices were going up. Essentially, what kind of leverage did investors have when they were putting money in? At that point, everyone kind of wanted to be in FTX. And to your point on a founder really riding the hype wave, there was no reason for Sam to ever raise any potential concerns either. Uh, he had Tom Brady, had Steph Curry, had Shaquille <laughs> O'Neal. Everyone was was getting on board. So uh, the FOMO, I think, really made it so that a lot of investors didn't really want to do it. And there were some that turned away and said, we don't want to be a part of this. I think those ones look a lot smarter in hindsight. But I think, you know, there there weren't, again, FTX famously did not really have, though they were trumpeting a lot of risk engines and, you know, compliance features that would have protected in a downturn. In reality, none of that was really there, and they didn't really have a chief compliance officer or anything like that to, I guess, check Sam on any of these decisions. And potentially, again, in a, in a nightmare scenario, as we heard his defense describe it, and, and a lot of what Sam's defense, I think, will lean on, is this idea of a correlated market downturn mm. that caught them flat-footed because they hadn't built into their risk models a potential, you know, quote-unquote, attack, as they call it, from another competitor. But in reality, uh, I think some of these details that we're hearing, that really doesn't matter so much when you design your company incorrectly or potentially stretch the truth so far that you are having to dip into customer funds to plug a hole. And that could have been prevented basically from the beginning. So the customer funds piece, um, one of the the pieces that Gary and his testimony brought up was that at a certain point, Alameda started to dip into customer funds. And, you know, he said in the beginning um, how much they were allowed to borrow was supposed to be constrained by FTX's revenue, which at that point was, you know, a couple hundred million dollars or so. And then he was digging into their financials and he's finding, oh, my gosh, there's they're actually borrowing billions more than that. And so they had to have been dipping into customer funds. And there was one moment in in the testimony where the prosecution's asking him about billions of dollars in uh, loans that Alameda owed to their lenders. I think it was 11 billion. And they asked him, well, where would the money come from to pay their lenders back? And, and Gary goes, it's a quote that I have used ad nauseum on the air at this point. <laughs> he says, the money, all the money came from FTX customers. So when you hear that, you know, you're you're a journalist, um, you know, you're but also put your yourself in the jury's mindset. Is that potentially a smoking gun moment or is that hearsay? Because you're having to trust this person who as the defense says, may have other motivations for testifying in exchange for leniency. What's your take? Yeah, I think that was that was kind of the key point that Sam's uh, lead defense attorney, Mark Cohen, stressed in his opening statement, right? Uh, as the jury's in there, he says, look, these you're going to hear testimony from a lot of people. You're going to hear people saying that Sam knowingly committed crimes because they've already pled guilty to these crimes. Mm. And he told the jury box, he told the jurors directly, do not necessarily read too much into their stories because they've signed a deal with the government to testify and play their role here in this trial. I thought it was pretty interesting because basically from the get-go, he's trying to do what any defense attorney would do, which is Put undermine doubt. the testimony, <laughs> <Yeah>. throw <laughs> doubt on everything you're about to hear. But as we discussed with Mark Cohen, or, sorry, not Mark Cohen, as we discussed with Mark Litt, 
the former lead prosecutor who took down Bernie Madoff, you know, he's a very successful white collar criminal defense attorney now and was a prosecutor then. And he was basically outlining the playbook for Mark Cohen to follow, which is undermine those who are about to testify against your client. And one of the things that I think the jury is going to need to hear in this case and basically what everyone in the press is now wondering is, is SBF going to testify? Is he going to take the stand in his own trial? Because, yes, you can try and undermine maybe one. To go against a three-on-one when you've got him, Caroline, and possibly Nishad Singh all saying the same thing, that Sam knew that there were multiple times in the timeline that we were knowingly committing crimes and we've now pled guilty to those crimes and the only person who hasn't is Sam, it's going to be tough. And I don't know how, as a defense attorney, you can try and, you know, maybe you can undermine one, but doing all three and to your point, the other testimony we've already heard outside of the key executives, it's hard. And and yeah, as I've seen the details come out again, we were, you know, one of the first outlets to cover what SBF's defense was going to look like. And we heard kind of how some of these accounts were structured before anybody else. And as I was looking at them, you know, at the time it made sense. At the time, it sounded like a strong defense. OK, we were caught, cla- uh, caught flat footed. We didn't know what was going on. I made some mistakes, but it wasn't criminal. I had no intent to steal money from customers. And now as you kind of look like, you know, as you as you look at the facts after hearing some of that testimony, some of it starts to look like maybe a convenient uh, portrayal of some details, but not the full picture. And obviously that's why you have a trial. That's why you have jury members listen to all this to put together the full picture And it's going to be on them. It's going to be on the 12 jurors in that box to say this is the full picture. This is the full story. And early on, it's not going well for Sam. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You know, the the 12 juror piece, right? It, you're, they're going to be in a room. They're going to be going over everything they heard for maybe six weeks at that point. You've been in the crypto industry and I, I'm I'm sitting there in that courtroom sometimes and I'm going, wow, you know, if, if you haven't been in this industry or you haven't been a journalist that is pouring over this for a year, this is complicated. Uh, they're showing you spreadsheets. They're showing the jurors videos of how this all worked, the back end. They're trying to make it easy and simple and about the fraud, but there are moments where I'm looking at my notes and I'm seeing words that I didn't know a couple years ago before I started covering this space, jurors that aren't familiar with it likely. Do you think that the prosecution might be getting too into the weeds? And even if there is a smoking gun, that there's undeniable evidence that the code was built in such a way that there was a back door to enable this to happen, there might be a moment when the jurors are in that room and they're just a little bit too confused to come to beyond reasonable doubt. Yeah, that was the interesting piece that Mark Litt, the former prosecutor in the Bernie Madoff uh, case, stressed was if you are a defense attorney, your strategy is confused. Right. 
everyone who's about to rule in this case. You're trying to confuse jurors. And if you're the prosecution, your strategy is just make this as simple as possible. And really just say, anytime the company is dipping into customer funds, you're not allowed to do that. That's a violation of terms of service. Also, it's a fraud. And so it has been interesting to see the back and forth, even with just, you know, the three witnesses we've heard from, kind of the different ways they're going about explaining the facts. And yeah, I mean, there are, there are journalists and, you know, people in the crypto industry in that courtroom who are confused. And, you know, we've seen a few times maybe jurors kind of dozing off. I don't know if your parents ever say, I'm not <laughs> sleeping. Know. I'm just resting my eyes. <laughs> it's kind of that sometimes. If you look over at the box, you're seeing some jurors sometimes kind of start to trail off. And yes, I think it is on both sides in this case to really be smart about how deep they want to go. And as a journalist covering it, I do find myself catching myself sometimes because there are, you know, some details where it's like, does this really even matter? If you step back and think about this stuff, and I think the Elizabeth Holmes example is a better one to use, so I'm glad you used it, versus maybe Bernie Madoff, because it wasn't a Ponzi scheme. Even Mark Litt, the prosecutor, took down Bernie Madoff, said this isn't Bernie Madoff part two. But that's where I think the reason why you have to go into this, this level of detail is because that's what makes it different, is that there were two companies, there was leverage involved. You know, these might not be terms that people have heard of before when it comes to leverage and, you know, spot trading and, uh, you know, margin calls, things like that. But both sides are trying to explain them enough to where the jury can kind of understand what's going on. And it's really in those details that I think is what makes this case interesting versus just an outright, you know, fraud scheme or, or Ponzi scheme. And I think that's why we do this. I love that you brought up uh, some of the jurors were dozing off because in that moment I was like, but this is so interesting, guys, wake <laughs> up. But to your point, right, there's some of us that are super nerdy about this space and maybe the folks that are in that room aren't necessarily going to have been locked into every second of the testimony. However, one person that I imagine people are going to be locked in on comes next. So Caroline Ellison, we mentioned her at the top ex-girlfriend of Sam Bankman-Fried. She was the CEO of Alameda, one of the companies at the center of all of this. And we're expecting everything from behind the scenes, operations like we've gotten from Gary to her diary uh, that the prosecution may enter as evidence of what was going on, how much Sam knew, their relationship. And a preview for us, what are you expecting her testimony to cover? Is it going to be juicy details of who Sam Bankman-Fried was as a person? Is it going to be the operations of it all? Yeah, I think juicy might be an understatement here uh, <laughs> on this one, Kelly. Uh, this one is going to be as strange as I think everyone's <laughs> expecting it to be because – Again, you got to remember the headlines going back to when FTX collapsed. There were claims of polycule, drug use, orgies, a lot of things that I think were blown out of proportion a little bit, having been down there in the Bahamas before. But I do think, you know, their sexual relations already come up at trial. So there could be details around their relationship personally, the relationship in terms of what happened you know, as employees at this company, and certainly, obviously, who knew what and when. And she is, as you said, the government star witness. I mean, Sam is currently in jail just a few blocks from our studio where I'm calling from because he leaked her diaries to the New York Times. And the judge ruled that that Good was point. witness intimidation. So, I mean, she has come up already before this trial started and has been a key player in this trial. 
And I think this is the government's chance to basically use someone's background in that role to, again, paint a picture of Sam. And so far, I don't know what your take's been, but so far the defense has not necessarily been super strong on cross with the witnesses that the prosecution has brought. The judge has already kind of called them out for stalling a bit in the back and forth. And so I don't know what they have plans, but I think that that's going to be part of the strategy because basically, as Coinage has reported, Sam's defense boils down to most of this is on Caroline Ellison. She was the one who miss, you know, basically got everything wrong from a risk perspective. I tried to tell her to head. She didn't listen to me. But at the end of the day, Sam put Caroline into that position. So I don't know how they're going to play that, but you're right. She is going to be key to both sides and how this goes. And this being so early in this trial, I think it's going to be a pivotal moment for both sides to really start to turn uh, the story more so in their own direction. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. I don't think the defense has been very strong on cross. You know, I'm sitting there, like I said, sometimes going, well, the prosecution is making this a little bit muddy, and I don't feel like the defense has taken those opportunities for potential layups to, you know, muddle through that and confuse jurors even more. The Ellison testimony, though, to your point, she is is the anchor of their defense. I mean, she's the anchor of both sides of this. And so I, I'm going to ask you the same question that I asked you about Gary. Does this become a he said, she said? We talked to uh, Bernie Madoff's defense attorney, actually, on, on the last episode, Iris Sorkin. And he's like, that doesn't work very well when it becomes he said, she said, especially when you've got two people in a romantic relationship and all the the details and dynamics that go along with that. So how do you think that's going to play out in the mind of a juror? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, it's far from a he said, she said, if the government's able to do its job, if they're able to kind of weave each story together with certain facts that they choose uh, in a way that presents it as a unified story of Sam knew what he was doing the whole time, and that's why. You've got basically an $8 billion hole for customers. I do think it is also interesting, though, that certain pieces that the defense has tried to include here is also continuing to get blocked. I mean, we've seen them try and add things that paint Sam in a positive light and almost unanimously across the board every time. Judge Kaplan says, no, that's not worth including in the trial. Yeah, well, Judge Kaplan seems to have made up his mind already, it seems. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, he has not had a lot of room for any nonsense in the courtroom or any room for anything that isn't exactly directly related to the trial. Um, But to to answer your question, I I do understand the risks there. And I do feel like that is, you know, one area where this can really quickly get off the rails. And I think maybe that's why Judge Kaplan has ruled it so strictly is that he wants everything to just stay very close to the seven counts that are being discussed. And with Caroline Ellison's testimony, that can go off the rails easily in every direction you want to go. And so I do think that the onus is going to be on the defense to really take this opportunity Uh, And clearly, I think they are going to, because if you think about what they've already done, like Sam's decision to leak Caroline Ellison's diaries to The New York Times, I think was a calculated one. Right. I think that that was one that was, okay. can we start this process of maybe having people think about who knew what and who did what and who might be at fault for, you know, the collapse of FTX? And it was pretty clear what I think he was trying to do with those journal entries that mostly pointed to. Even Caroline saying herself, I'm not sure if I'm the best person suited Mm. for this role. And so you've got basically undermining on all fronts. The defense trying to undermine their witnesses here. 
And also, I think Sam, even before the trial started, trying to undermine Caroline Ellison specifically. So I don't know which side the jury is going to go with on this one. Yeah, you know, you, you bring up the point of that it was a very calculated risk to leak that. And I think, to your point earlier, his entire decision-making process throughout this, to be talking to many outlets of the media, including yourself, uh, I think in the beginning, everyone's like, what is this guy doing? <laughs> Everything that you're saying right now could be used by the prosecution in a court of law. And yet... The guy is not dumb. He went to MIT. You know, he convinced investors, very storied investors, to pour money into this. And that brings me to this question of, do you think he will take the stand? It's calculated risk. It might be necessary, to your point, to refute a number of different inner circle members saying, nope, fraud, nope, fraud. Yeah, no, we were, we were doing bad things the whole time. And he seems to believe in that narrative that he's been able to build. Uh, what do you think? Are we going to see SBF take the stand? That sounds like a, a song from a, a Broadway musical, maybe Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> I won't break out into tune here, Kelly, but I will. I will say I think that you are right. And I'll tell you why I think you're right. I think you're right that Sam's going to take the stand because of what we at Coinage, what I have seen as a crypto journalist covering the space, and it goes back to, you know, one of the collapses that predates FTX's collapse. It was a $40 billion collapse. Do Kwan, the founder of Terra, also mm. saw very much the same thing happen. He, uh, you know, his defense is I got over my skis and was wrong about the calculations here and what happened. But his project collapsed because I think the same thing happened that happened with SBF. He got too cocky. Hubris, again, pride cometh before the fall situation of I can do no wrong. Look, I've built this company in two years. In Sam's case, I'm the richest guy under 30 in the world. Like, look at look at who I am. I can do no wrong. And I think, you know, it's the same thing when you put someone on the stand. Of course, it's, you know, he's going to have counsel from his defense. They're going to sure. say, maybe this is good, maybe this is bad. But I think, if you think about what happened at FTX, I think that same thinking will lead him inevitably to take the stand because he's going to think I can do no wrong. Do I think that maybe... FTX going down could change some of that, potentially. The sense that I got, though, when I was at his parents' home as kind of the last journalist to talk to Sam pre-trial, he seemed as confident as ever. Hmm. He's, he's working on his defense, putting all these details together and trying to figure out the best way to defend himself and get out of this, you know, this pickle is understating it, but getting out of the problem that he now faces. And yeah, I think, I think he's going to have to because it's not going well. I think that's objective uh, and odds were already slim. And I think he's going to tell himself, I can outsmart the prosecutors here. Whether or not that looks worse or better to the jury, though, hmm. I'm not sure. I don't know. Yeah. Well, when you, you think about what it takes to be a founder, you have to be just willing to 1000% bet on yourself and your ability to convince customers, investors that you're you're it and you know what you're doing. And and I wonder if some of that will bleed over into this, but only time will tell. And I'm sure we will be talking to you more about this as it evolves. Um, Zach, thanks so much for your time today. Such an interesting perspective from someone who, who knew SBF as the richest person under 30 years old uh, to now. So thanks for joining us. 
Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, Kelly. I appreciate it. Right, folks well that does it for us today remember to subscribe and listen we will be dropping new episodes monday and wednesday and be sure to tune in to the next one because we will be breaking down what we have heard from gary wang and what we will hear from caroline ellison that is sure to be dramatic testimony that's all for now Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox.